0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hi there is the mayor in Marissa Lang with the Washington Post. Hey, it's
0: Dossie. Or to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my
1: name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 21st. Today, the rising threat of homegrown terrorism, a new era for journalists covering Trump, and Dogs Back in the White House. Chief Justice Roberts. So, Shane, in President Biden's inauguration speech on Wednesday, he talked explicitly about the threat of white supremacist groups and of domestic domestic terrorism. terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. Which, at least to me, seemed like a pretty significant shift for what we've seen presidents talk about before, especially during an inauguration speech. What does that tell you about how the federal government is viewing the threat of domestic terrorism like what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th?
2: I think it tells you that this administration is going to see domestic extremism, if you want to call it domestic terrorism, as a top, if not the top national security or certainly domestic security threat that it faces. I am Shane Harris, and I cover intelligence and national security at The Washington Post. I don't know that absent the attack on the Capitol of January 6th, you would have seen it show up in an inaugural address, Uh, but I'm confident that a Biden administration would have paid more attention to it, certainly than the previous administration or even ones before that. But the attack on the Capitol has made this issue rocket in importance to the top of the stack.
0: So if there is this sense that what happened on January 6th is in some ways a wake-up call to law enforcement viewing these threats, what, what does that actually mean in terms of what they are worried about and what they are going to do about it?
2: Well, what they're worried about is it's actually kind of a range of extremist threats that are actually not all that new, I think, to people in the FBI, certainly in the Homeland Security Department. You're talking about white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, uh, kind of far-right extremists, QAnon conspiracy theorists. They're all kind of in this stew that we think of lately that kind of came together around the idea that the election was being stolen, the Stop the Steal movement. But many of these are distinct groups that have had particular domestic agendas, agendas for some time and have been on the radar of law enforcement and security agencies. There have been arrests of some of these groups as well. So what that means, though, in terms of what they're going to do about it, it's important to emphasize what this is not. January 6th is not another Mm 9-11. There was this wholesale reorientation of government and national security after 9-11 to deal with a threat that just was not sufficiently on the radar, but also importantly, our government structures weren't really set up and well equipped to deal with the threat of foreign terrorist groups attacking in the US. That's not so much the case now, FBI, Homeland Security, they have authorities to track domestic extremists, they have tools, Mm. the criminal statutes, you know, are well suited. To, to dealing with these kinds of groups. what's I think you're going to find here is more of a kind of honing of those tools and an increase in focus. People at the top of these agencies saying this is now a priority, spend more time and more money on this threat.
0: Huh. Well, if you say that a lot of these tools are already available to federal law enforcement and national security officials, why was it that some of the warning signs were missed ahead of the Capitol attack. Like, what did they know? What did they not know? And what could they have done that would have prevented that?
2: It seems from the preliminary reporting, and we're going to get a much more deeper investigation of this when Congress and the executive branch presumably both do investigations, but it seems that it wasn't so much a lack of intelligence per se, but rather a failure on the part of law enforcement leaders to appreciate that intelligence to take it more seriously so for instance we had an fbi field office in norfolk virginia that sent up a report up the chain that said look there are these domestic groups that we know about saying they want to have a violent event. They're talking about making war at the Capitol. We know that there was other reporting from law enforcement agencies to that effect as well, but it doesn't seem that the leadership of the Capitol Police, who has the responsibility of protecting the Capitol, took that seriously enough. It appears that they may have regarded it as something more like a political rally. Donald Trump's rallies were often rowdy. Uh, they didn't turn into riots. So it may be not so much that there that, that wasn't enough intelligence, but rather that the leadership of these agencies didn't stop and say, hey, we should react to this. Rather, they treated it just kind of like an ordinary event, or, or at least not one that required hmm. changing significantly mm-hmm. their security posture, which now we realize that they should have done.
0: But I think the fact that some of these law enforcement agencies viewed this threat just as like, political chatter, or this is what people do at Trump rallies, I think it speaks to how, in some ways, the situation that we find ourselves in right now is, as you said, very different from the kind of national intelligence soul-searching that happened after September 11th. Because, of course, this is not like, yes, some of these groups are quote unquote fringe groups, but at the same time, these were views that were espoused by the president, by other members of Congress who continue to be in Congress, How do you like grapple with the fact that this isn't like an us versus them situation that, you know, the call is coming from the inside?
2: Right. I actually like your use of the word soul searching. And there was a lot of that after 9-11. And I do think there's a lot of that that needs to be called for here for precisely the reason that you're articulating, which is that this is not a threat of Al-Qaeda or foreign terrorist groups bringing violence to our shores, right? This is fellow Americans who are attacking their fellow citizens and their institutions of government. That is one big reason, I think, while even though these groups have been on the radar of law enforcement and have been taken seriously, they've perhaps not been taken more seriously or as seriously as they should. And the kind of crackdown that you're probably going to see coming in the wake of January 6th. And there are a couple of big reasons for that. One, they are our fellow citizens and they're engaged in political speech. I mean, at the end of the day, now not when it crosses the line into violence, mm-hmm. but you know, if you show up at a Trump rally and you scream that the election was stolen and Joe Biden is not the legitimate president and we should take it back and that's all you do, that's covered by the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same way the people who marched in Charlottesville shouting, you know, blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. That's repugnant and it's constitutionally protected. When it crosses the line into violence, obviously that is not. Those are crimes. But law enforcement traditionally has been really reluctant to sort of do anything that might be seen as impinging upon people's rights to freely assemble and to express their political views In large part because the law enforcement agencies have a very ugly history of spying on and trying to crack down on people who do that, notably civil rights activists. And the second was, you know, when Donald Trump was president, I mean, he was espousing these views. He was encouraging them. Donald Trump, when he was president, set the policy agenda for law enforcement and domestic and homeland security. So if the president of the United States is saying these are fine people, as he did in Charlottesville, or he's you know telling them to rally at the White House, then I think it sends a message to people who run the Homeland Security Department and the FBI of you know don't go there, um, or tread very carefully if you do.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm also curious about how that plays out when it comes to actually prosecuting or charging members of extremist groups, white supremacist groups, if there is a reticence from some law enforcement agencies in terms of not wanting to infringe on free speech like, what are the actual charges that can be filed against some of these people and in what scenarios? Like, is there just a charge for partaking in a form of domestic terrorism? Like, is that a thing? No.
2: I mean, we don't. In fact, we actually don't have a domestic terrorism statute per se. Uh, in in U.S. law. What we have, though, are a lot of applicable statutes. So for instance, um, criminal trespass, destruction of government property, you know, uh, assaulting a police officer obviously would be one that would apply to January 6th. But there are those who think that we might need something, you know, like an actual domestic terrorism statute that might make more clearly spelled out, okay, this is what we mean when we say political violence or where free speech crosses a line.
0: And and what could that potentially look like? Like, what would that definition be?
2: Well, that's a good question. I think one way you could think about it is if you try to define it as, you know, a conspiracy or organized violence that had as express purpose overthrow of the government or political intimidation. When we think about terrorism sort of in a more colloquial sense, we think about people engaging in acts of violence in order to try and persuade a government to change a policy, you know, uh, release prisoners, uh, withdraw your troops from this particular country or region. You could imagine a sort of similar lens being applied in the domestic context to a group, let's say, mm. like, you know, Adam Waffen or or even the Proud Boys, if they're saying, you know, we think that there should be a violent overthrow of government. Those would be the kind of places where I think you could draw bright lines. But the problem in that, though, is, you know, every one of those actions is is preceded by constitutionally protected activity. So you have to be really careful, I think, in in where you draw the line. That's why if you're going to have a domestic terrorism statute, there will be a ton of debate, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the Congress and all kinds of different experts and groups will want to weigh in on that. But those who advocate doing that kind of a law say it'll bring more clarity and it will just provide more resources for federal law enforcement to crack down on that. But it will not be without controversy. there's a reason we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, and I think this is one of them.
0: I'm also curious about how this wake-up call from the federal government will extend out to local law enforcement. And if it will start changing views at local police agencies about who and what they should consider a threat.
2: I think it will. And one of the things you're already hearing from current and former law enforcement officials about in the wake of January 6th is that the federal government needs to do a better job at pushing that information out to state and local governments to say, okay, here are the threats that we're seeing. We think they're in your area. Here's where we see people organizing in your community. And you're right. You do want to depend on those state and local authorities to then be able to say to you, like, you know, yes, we're tracking this group, or maybe you're misreading this. So there has to be that that give and take, right? Policing is not a national action. It's It's a local action. But the federal government does play this role as the kind of, the top of the pyramid, if you will, with the most resources and the most intelligence about who these groups are, there's gonna have to Mm. be much more active engagement with state and locals on that after 9-11, we set up these apparatuses within FBI and the new Homeland Security Department to get state and local officials talking with each other about the threat of terrorism. So if you go to a big city like Los Angeles, there's something called the Joint Terrorism Task Force. You could imagine that model just being tweaked a little bit towards more domestic actors or far right-wing extremists. That that ultimately is how law enforcement works. It's a cooperative effort. It's, It's not simply done by the federal government. We see like the federal piece of when we go to airports and the TSA person checks you in, right? But if you go to a city, big or small, that's federal authorities cooperating with law enforcement on the ground to actually do real physical security in a community.
0: So do you think that years from now, we will look back on this moment in our country and see a real shift in in how we view this idea of who and what is a domestic threat?
2: I think that January 6th will be a pivotal moment and it will be a point after which no one can reasonably say that groups that are loudly protesting about stolen elections or attacking a candidate can just be said to be blowing off steam or to have very strong views. People who organize politically around anti-government movements, there will be a suspicion that they could turn violent around them. But I also think that there's a much harder and maybe subtler shift that happens after January 6th. And I'm not at all confident that we're ready to do this as a country where to your point about how, you know, we've kind of seen the enemy and the enemy is us. It's not some other overseas that we can define. We're going to have to have a lot of really difficult conversations about what are the roots of these anti-government groups. And it's not merely people who you know, want more states' rights <laughs> or who are sort of anti-federalist. A lot of this is tied up in ideas and beliefs in white supremacy. It is tied up in a, in a political commitment to turn the clock back on civil rights. We can't turn away from the fact that many of these groups have racist roots. And if you're and the only way I think that you really start to develop a strategy for addressing what it can truly be called terrorism or something that is fundamentally anti-American is to look at it for what it is and to be honest about that. It's a lot easier to come up with new policies and even new laws and new law enforcement tools than it is to really get to the root of what's driving these people. When I've talked to experts in the past couple of weeks, They all keep coming around to that same point. You know, we can talk all you want about new law enforcement authorities and a new law and reorganizing the FBI and more focus on white supremacists and extremists. But until we get to the root cause of this, which, by the way, is also still the systemic inequality in the way we police in communities in this country, you're not going to really come up with smart policies for addressing this problem.
0: Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. On Wednesday, the Senate confirmed Avril Haines as director of national intelligence. During her confirmation hearing, she was asked about domestic terrorism.
1: If I am confirmed as the director of national intelligence, obviously the intelligence community is not in the lead in managing these events. It's the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. But the intelligence community, I hope, will have an important role in supporting their work and ultimately, in particular, looking at any connections there are between folks uh, in the United States and externally and foreign, um, you know, abroad or or connections or influence that might have been appropriately
0: um, identified as a context of the intelligence community. The end of the Trump era also means a moment of transition for the journalists who have covered him, including our own Allison Michaels, host of The Post's politics podcast, Can He Do That? Can He Do That is a podcast that has been focused on this question of the powers and limitations of the presidency and how Trump was testing the things that the president can and cannot do. But now Trump is gone. And I wanted to talk to Allison about how those questions from the last four years will start to look different in the next administration.
3: Four years ago, there was this unexpected moment for for a lot of Americans when Trump was elected president. He was this Washington outsider who ran on the notion that he would kind of tear everything up, that he'd undo everything in Washington, that he'd do things totally differently. And at the time, he was making these real suggestions about what those things would look like. So he was threatening to build a wall, of course. Everyone remembers that. But there were other things that he was suggesting where he might totally buck the norms of the presidency. And Washington Post readers would ask us over and over again, can he do that thing that he's saying he's going to do. That was basically how Can He Do That was born.
0: What were some of the earliest, like, can he do that questions that you answered in episodes?
3: What is so interesting when you do look back at those episodes are the kinds of questions we were asking. Our very first episode was called Can He Tweet That? Welcome to the very first episode of Can He Do That? I've got our White House reporter, Abby Phillip, here to help us answer some of these questions. Thanks for joining us, Abby. Thanks for having me. And it was this deep dive into presidential communication and the laws and the precedent that guide it. Why do we care about Trump's Twitter account?
0: Well, Donald Trump is unique in that he may be the first American president to actually personally use his Twitter account. That may give his messages on social media a unique amount of weight, but do Trump's tweets have the full backing of the federal government behind it? Can he make policy on Twitter? These are things that I think the whole country and even the world are eager to know.
3: And I think back to that episode and... Oftentimes, I think of how small that question seems compared to the others that we would later go on to ask. But at the same time, in the past week or so, four years later, the president's being banned from Twitter, that has really seemed to change the weight of his influence. So in some ways, it was almost this prescient bookender of a question. That being said, it's true that in the early days of our episodes, we focused more on ceremonial stuff. I think we asked, like, can a president just go to Mar-a-Lago every weekend? Or can he not attend the Kennedy Center Honors or the White House Correspondents Center? Things that that seem sort of trivial. And as Trump's presidency progressed, so did the seriousness of the kinds of questions that we were eventually
0: asking. It's funny how in some ways, it feels very quaint in retrospect to be having these questions about, can he do these things that are different than how previous presidents have done things? Because I think, at least my sense, is that most of the time, the answer to the question was, yes, he can do it because he is doing it. And maybe there are going to continue to be questions or concerns around that, and people are going to complain about it, or people are going to raise you know ethical implications of what he's doing. But... He is doing it. So he can.
3: Right, right. I can't tell you how many tweets of that nature I've (laughs) received over the past four years that yes, he can because he is. But to that point, really our main takeaway after four years of making the show was that as President Trump pushed these boundaries of his office and our democracy faced a bunch of new tests as a result. So much of what guides our system and isn't exactly codified in the way that many of us once assumed. So yes, he can do it because he's doing it, but really it pushes up against so many norms and so much precedent and so many ethical issues that there might not be mechanisms in place to stop him. The powers and limitations of the presidency, and for that matter of many parts of our government, they're actually guided a lot more by these norms and precedents than certainly I realized before I made this show. As we look at the next administration, it will be interesting to examine whether or not some of these Some of these guidelines are codified into law as to prevent, you know, anything that would be seen as pushing against those norms and pushing against those precedents from really happening again.
0: So tell me more about that. What is Can He Do That going to be focusing on during this next presidential administration? And what are the questions that you have going forward?
3: Yeah, I think we are just really facing this incredibly fractured time in American history. So a lot of the questions that we have now are, about how much one man or one presidency can really do to repair such a broken, such a divided country in this moment. Biden has really run on this idea of, of unity, that he's the person for this moment, that he can bring the country together. So we're really asking, can he? Can he do that? Those questions are going to look like things like, what might Biden actually do to restore those norms that I just spoke about? Are there things that he won't restore that we saw from the Trump era, or what can't be undone that he might seek to undo? And then a big question for me is is centered around what Biden campaigned on. He called the election a battle for the soul of the nation. So I always ask this question, who's winning? I don't know who's winning that right now. I don't know who's won the soul, for the soul of the nation, this battle for the soul of the nation. Biden wants to do a lot of things. So can he do them? That's really what what we're probing at.
0: And I think that's such a great articulation of the herculean challenge that he's facing and the big promises that he's made that it's not only about a change in in policy platforms and laws that he wants to pass and things that he wants to fund you know that there's this fundamental idea that he is the person who's going to make people believe in the legitimacy of the government or of our election system again, that he's going to repair this, like, fundamental rift in our society and how we look at central things like what is the truth. And that seems like really hard things to do. And I think that there is a big question of whether Biden will be capable of doing that.
3: Right. And it's not just Biden. I think this is an important thing to remember, as we've often done on the show, We look not solely at the president. We take a deep look at the system that surrounds him. Biden will be tasked with repairing these things, but he's really bound at least somewhat by the systems that surround him. So we will be exploring each of those systems. We will be exploring the ways that our government holds presidents accountable, the ways that our government fails to do so, how far executive orders can go.
0: And also, it seems like there actually still are outstanding can-he-do-that questions about Trump himself, especially about what happens to President Trump after he has now ceased to be president. Um, Will he be prosecuted? Will he face repercussions for things that he's done in office? I mean, those are things that we haven't really seen play out for any other former president.
3: Right. And so I think for us, it's important to be clear about the fact that this man is no longer in power. And therefore, some of his actions, many of his actions, most of his actions, I should say, don't carry the weight or warrant the extent of coverage that we gave him while he was president. But that being said, this man is facing a historic second impeachment trial after he's left office. He has some outstanding legal questions, as you said, and and he might still be an active voice in the GOP. So there will be some coverage on the show when it's warranted, when it rises to the level of, of something having a real impact on our politics and our discourse. We're not just going to, you know, ignore Trump altogether. But I do think it's important to make sure that what we cover rises to the level of of real impact.
0: And, Alison, I'm also just curious for you, a person who has been thinking about these questions since day one of the Trump presidency. How does it feel now to get to the end of this presidency and look back on how much things have changed, how our expectations have shifted, and how this administration has really changed how we think about the president? I think it has been a remarkable
3: journey for somebody who has been answering questions about the president basically every week since he took office. As we talked about examining some of the questions that we were asking at the beginning and seeing how slowly but surely those questions took on an incredibly more serious nature and really— brought us to this critical moment that we witnessed on January 6th at the Capitol, this moment that we're seeing on Inauguration Day where a president is not attending the inauguration, I think it's important to notice that this didn't really come out of nowhere. This built up over time. And so now as we head into the next presidency, I think there are moments at the beginning that we should be paying attention to even more closely to sort of understand where this presidency could go. I think a lot of what happens in a presidency, as I've discovered, is sort of laid out in those early days. And I think that in these early days of the Biden administration, we should be paying attention to what we can learn from what we're seeing up front.
0: So, Allison, where and when can people find the show?
3: So there's a chance that your podcast app algorithm might recommend it to you after you listen to this episode of Post Reports. But if not, WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, you can grab it on
0: Thursday evenings. Can he do that? Thursday evening. Okay. Allison, thank you so much. Thank you, Martine. Allison Michaels is the host of the podcast Can He Do That? New episodes drop every Thursday evening.
4: monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
0: And now, one more thing from Style reporter Maura Jedkiss about two high-profile new residents in the White House.
1: So one small way that the Biden White House is going to be very different from the Trump White House is that President Biden has dogs. The first one is Champ.
4: He's a talker. Watch this. Hey, Champ, you want to play golf? Well, where's the golf club?
1: And Champ was named after a nickname that he had gotten from his own father. His father used to say, Champ, when you get knocked down, get up. And this is a story that he's told many times on the campaign trail. And so Champ was purchased shortly after he became vice president, purchased from a breeder in Pennsylvania. And then several years later, he got Major, his second dog, also a German shepherd, and Major was adopted from a shelter. The Delaware Humane Association had posted some pictures of some rescued German shepherd puppies two years ago on their Facebook feed, and it caught Ashley Biden, the president's daughter's eye. And so the president went to the Delaware Humane Association um, and ended up fostering Major first before adopting him later. And Major will be the first shelter dog in the White House. So, yeah, so um, <laughs> I think I probably got the most fun assignment of everyone
4: the um, yes. politics because
1: I'm writing a So, I spoke with I Patrick Carroll, who is the executive director of the Delaware Humane Association, and he was there the same day that Major was adopted. Uh, and it was a really big deal in the shelter that day.
2: The one thing I remember is that he had said, you know, I really don't have a lot of time. So, I really kind of thought it'd be quick and, you know, that we do the one group photo. But he just spent, I think, more than an hour here.
1: I think there was some thoughts and hopes and aspirations that maybe this dog could one day live in the White House.
2: My vet knew that he adopted from us, and he was like, "Um, you know, he's going to run for president, right? And I'm like, he is? I remember that very clearly. I'm like, no, he's not. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, yes, he
1: is. I think one thing about a president having a dog is it kind of shows you they're a normal guy. Like (laughs) they can walk their dog on the White House lawn. I mean, which is not a normal situation, of course. But they're still walking their dog, spending time with their dog. You know, like they might have to clean up messes or the occasional shoe that's been chewed up. Um, You know, puppies have a lot of energy. And I've heard from people who know the dogs that Major has that puppy energy still. You know, it kind of shows you that the president is doing a lot of the normal dog owner things that other people across the country might be doing. Of course, he's not doing that all the time. When he travels, there are other people to take care of those dogs. But everything I've heard from people who know the president and know the dogs say that he really likes to do things himself and he likes to spend time with the dogs and he's very hands-on in training them. You know, he has these big dogs and they have a lot of energy and, you know, he kind of matches their big dog energy and and likes to play with them. And so I think a lot of people can relate to that.
0: Maura Judkis is a writer for the Style Section.
1: We want to welcome everyone to the first ever Inauguration Celebration.
0: Earlier this week, the Delaware Humane Association helped put on an inauguration to welcome Major, the first first shelter dog, into the White House.
1: And we are so honored to be celebrating our incredible new first dog, Major Biden, on his wags-to-riches triumph.
0: That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you are a regular listener to this podcast and find it to be an important part of your day, consider subscribing to The Washington Post. Subscribers make all of our work possible. Right now, there is an exclusive offer going on for podcast listeners. For just $59, you can get two years of unlimited digital access to The Washington Post. That comes out to $2.46 a month. To get that offer, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Or find a link in today's show notes. And thank you so much.